Welcome to the Exposing Mold podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are deep diving into the 1988 Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome and all things toxic mold related. Today, we have a very interesting introduction to chronic fatigue syndrome. We have Eric, who is an original prototype of chronic fatigue syndrome, and he has a lot of the medical history about why chronic fatigue syndrome isn't well understood and why the terminology is used differently with different doctors. Toxic mold exposure has a long and winding confusing history that involve a lot of different illness names. And we are going to have Eric explain what happened when the CDC was called in to investigate a mysterious outbreak at Lake Tahoe. Go ahead, Alicia. So um, yeah, we're really excited to be here. And we just are focusing on this because this is kind of ground zero where we started to see a, a lot of weird things happening in the environment with people. So that's why we wanted to go ahead and start with this. Um, what we really want to be clear on are the organizations and the people that we will be referencing in Eric's story. So just to make sure, because we're going to be throwing around a lot of terms, and we just want you guys, our viewers, to understand who we're referencing and what they do. Um, so first and foremost, we will be referencing the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Their acronym is NIAID. And they're just one of these centers that make up the National Institutes of Health, which is the NIH. Now, they are an agency of the U.S. Department of Health Services, also known as HHS, and they are a branch of the U.S. federal government. So on their website, on the HHS's website, it states that their goal, and I quote, is to enhance the health and well-being of all Americans by providing for effective health and human services of all Americans and by fostering sound sustained advances in the sciences underlying medicine, public health, and social services, end quote. Now, the NIAID's job is to utilize and research to learn to treat and prevent any infectious, immunologic, and allergic diseases. So, on that note, that branch, a part of the NIH, is basically supervising medical and behavioral research. And their mission of seeking, and I also quote, because I don't want to be misquoted here, is they seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and the application of that knowledge to enhance health, lengthen life, and reduce illness and disability. Now, we're also going to be referencing the U.S. Centers of Disease for Control and Prevention, the CDC. The purpose of this institution is to protect America from any health, safety, and security threats that are either U.S. or foreign-born. They claim to increase the health security of the nation by conducting research and providing, and I quote, health information that protects the nation against expensive and dangerous health threats and response when these arise. Now, Eric is going to be discussing the chronic fatigue syndrome and the Tahoe flu, the outbreak that happened in Incline Village. 
And the two key players in this are um, doctors Dan Peterson and Paul Cheney. They were internal medicine physicians um, that were seeing a rise in cases in Incline Village and they were shocked about what was happening. So they went ahead, picked up the phone, called the CDC to kind of alert them that something is going on in the area. So Eric, I'll go ahead and let you tell your story and uh, the pertinent information that our viewers need to know. Okay, to understand why chronic fatigue syndrome is so confusing, one needs a little bit of prehistory to go back in time to about eight years before the CDC actually coined the syndrome. There was a um, country doctor up in Incline Village named Dr. Robert Cathcart. This was back in late 1979, 1980, and he was seeing some people with a chronically fatiguing illness that they just couldn't seem to recover from. And he was known as the vitamin C pioneer. He's quite famous for this. Um, he started treating people with mega doses of vitamin C and came to the conclusion that they must have a mitochondrial problem because the additional mega doses of vitamin C were replenishing the spent electrons that powered the mitochondria, and this was the only therapy that really helped these people to improve. So this, um, this doctor got a little bit of notoriety, eventually moved away from Incline Village, and all he left behind was a faint memory of having run into these strange people with a fatigue illness. And fast forward, to 1983 when a doctor on the East Coast named Richard Dubois began seeing the same kind of thing. And thanks to a new test uh, that wasn't commercially available yet, a Epstein-Barr virus serology test, it was still in the experimental stages, he was able to determine that these people had fluctuating levels of Epstein-Barr virus. He believed that he was seeing a new syndrome, wrote it up in a medical journal as a chronic mono type illness, where it completely fell flat. He, he believed that he was seeing some new syndrome and there was no interest in it whatsoever. Well, this chronic mono seemed to spread, affect more people and more doctors across the United States were running into this problem, but the Center for Disease Control wasn't taking it very seriously. And in 1984, November of 1984, a flu-like illness started to emerge at the north end of Lake Tahoe, started to hit um, various clusters of teachers, but mostly it was a sporadic disease that seemed very similar to what Dr. Dubois had described. These two uh, doctors that had moved to Incline Village after Dr. Cathcart's departure, Dr. Paul Cheney and Dr. Daniel Peterson, were the only doctors that saw a pattern. They um, grew increasingly alarmed as more peace, people with a, a fatigue illness came into their practice and started casting around for some kind of explanation as to what was going on. And just at this time, 1985, 
Two new papers appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association, written by uh, Dr. James Jones and Dr. Stephen Strauss of the NIH. One was a chronic mononucleosis-like syndrome, and the other was about uh, chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. Both of these implicated Epstein-Barr virus as the, the cause because that's what they were seeing, a reactivation of F or new onset of Epstein-Barr virus. The, um, Dr. Peterson was on a ski trip over the Christmas holidays. He read this, got excited, and thought perhaps he had an answer to why people in the uh, Lake Tahoe Basin were showing up in this practice. So he applied the old standard test for Epstein-Barr virus, the monospot test, and people were negative. The um, test ruled that out, so no further action was taken until about January, um, April of 1985, when a brand new Epstein-Barr virus test based on the one that Dubois had been using was made commercially available through the Nichols lab. It was uh, called the EBD serology test. Dr. Peterson applied this test to the same patients and lo and behold, it showed that they did have the same fluctuating Epstein-Barr virus levels. So this um, illness that he was seeing met the criteria met the definition for the chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome that had been assembled by the Center for Disease Control to study this emerging problem. Um, the uh, illness at first seemed to be purely a, a sporadic illness and was not very alarming, just a, a sort of flu-like illness that didn't go away but it wasn't responding to anything. And as numbers grew, the, um, Dr. Cheney became more alarmed and he, it was actually his idea to call the Center for Disease Control for help. Um, I should go back and mention that at this time, there were so many people suffering from uh, some kind of strange illness across North Lake Tahoe that some of us were looking around for what what could have happened to cause this. And the major thing that had changed in our environment was the application of cloud seeding. The ski areas, in order to encourage the precipitation of, of snow, um, were using private aircraft plus mountain top cloud seeding devices to try to seed every cloud that was coming uh, our way. And we had wondered what effect this might have on the environment. We were scared that the uh, silver iodide, which is a known powerful antimicrobial, could be affecting the environment in some way. And we were starting to see signs of an algal bloom. Now this algal bloom was unprecedented for Lake Tahoe and had people really shook up. It wasn't just the Tahoe, um, Lake Tahoe itself, but it started to emerge in some of the uh, smaller lakes and even Donner Lake, about 13 miles away. And 
since we hadn't seen any kind of algae bloom like this, I wondered if it might be connected to the mystery illness that Dr. Cathcart had seen in an early stage and what Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson, just a couple of normal country doctors at this point, if they were running into later. So this is kind of um, the, the abnormal situation that we had seen in the early 1980s before the Tahoe flu struck and caught national attention. Right. Can I ask a question, Eric? Sure. Who was responsible for the cloud seeding? That was the um, Desert Mountain Research Institute um, based in Reno, Nevada. The, I don't know where they got their authorization to conduct this cloud seeding, but somehow they put together this program and put mountaintop cannon cloud seeders uh, upwind of the Tahoe Basin and started indiscriminately drenching all the, the clouds that were coming our way. In addition to this, the uh, ski resorts hired essentially illegal private planes with wing-mounted uh, silver iodide dispersers, and they would actually go out and chase clouds if they were lined up with the, the ski resorts, they would actually try to catch these clouds and seed them before they got here. And we were really wondering what on earth all this silver iodide might do. And some of us tried to protest on the basis that there, no environmental impact report had ever been made. And that since these were known to be toxic, if you put silver iodide in the um, silver nanoparticles, in a bowl with goldfish, it'll kill the fish. They knew that, they even told us about it, but they said there was no reason to worry because it would be so widely dispersed that it couldn't possibly be toxic. Well, if this accumulates on mountainsides and is swept down into creeks, down into narrow streams where fish and you know, frogs are, are located, couldn't it possibly increase the concentration and be harmful to them. They told us that we had no proof. So all of our efforts to protest this cloud seeding came to nothing. And we were actually forced to resort to saying ridiculous things like, well, if you succeed in creating so much snowpack that we have avalanches or people suffer financially from having to remove too much snow, you might be held criminally liable for, for damages which was ridiculous because snow is like gold up at Lake Tahoe. It's not really possible to have too much snow. But that's the, the level of desperation we went to to try to stop this uh, experiment on our environment. Wow, that's, that's crazy to hear. <laughs> Just, I mean, it's insane. But what, what I wanted to know is when did you guys start um, protesting or when did you find out this was happening and, and how far along was that when the illness broke out? I don't think people were really all that concerned about the cloud seeding. Some environmentalists were, but it didn't really catch the public's attention until the mystery illness occurred. Because then a lot of us were looking for what went wrong in our, our environment 
And that's when the uh, protests moved into high gear and it wound up in the newspaper. In fact, the uh, article about the cloud seeding starting up again was deliberately placed right next to an article about the Lake Tahoe mystery illness because we knew or we suspected that in some way these might be connected and we wanted to draw attention to that. Wow. And I know that we had had this discussion before, but could you explain another time in history where this was actually found pertinent, like the cholera outbreak? I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, um, we had discussed this before and I'm not familiar with the cholera outbreak, but could you describe more of how that is pertinent from your situation to history? Uh, well, having read medical history and being somewhat familiar with methods of epidemiology, I'd read about the famous incident in London where Dr. John Snow identified an outbreak of cholera um, even before the germ theory was invented by making uh, what is called a choropleth map, basically a situation map of London that showed where all the people were getting sick from this cholera disease. And it was all centered around a, a common well, a water pump where everybody obviously had to, to get water from for that neighborhood. He surmised that this well must or was probably the source of the outbreak and persuaded London officials to lock down the pump handle to prevent people from getting water. And sure enough, the cholera outbreak subsided. Well, I made a similar situation map of North Lake Tahoe and found that the um, major centers of the mystery disease um, were in around sewer systems and sick buildings. So, that's how I came up with the idea that perhaps these ultrafine particles had stimulated the microbes in such a way as to make them more powerful, causing the sick buildings to get sicker, causing the sewer systems to emit something, some unknown agent that was affecting people's immune systems. And you did try to bring this to the attention at, to the doctors that were, that were bringing awareness or ringing the alarm bells for the Lake Tahoe mystery illness. So did you try to make that connection with them before the CDC was called in or after? Yes, I did. Before? Yes. Um, because I was ill from toxic mold exposure from years prior, I was familiar with the sick buildings. So I had a sense of how bad they felt and how much worse they were getting. And I was actually seeing Dr. Paul Cheney at this time. I was his first mystery illness patient. I was seeing him in late summer of 1984 before the official outbreak even began. I was trying to see him for my, my mold exposure illness. And as all the buildings got sicker and I started to react to certain areas around the lake, I tried to draw this to his attention. How was that received? Um, actually, pretty well. Dr. Cheney was an extremely open-minded individual, and we talked at great length uh, about my concepts, and he took an interest in my case, and as a result of the immunological abnormalities that he detected in me, 
actually selected me as the first patient prototype for what happened later when the Center for Disease Control got involved and started working on a new syndrome. However, he um, couldn't see any mechanism for all the sick buildings to get worse simultaneously. So he told me, in order for your concept, your theory to be accurate, all the buildings would have had to got, become worse at the same time. And that just can't happen. And my answer to Dr. Cheney is, well, what if it did? What if it had something to do with its algal bloom? And I think he might have looked into it had he only stayed, but thanks to political pressure and difficulties that occurred later, he was essentially forced out of Incline Village and all further investigation into environmental factors was dropped. Why was he forced out? Um, well, well, we should save that for another episode. That's, that's, a, that's a good story. So at what point did the Dr. Peterson and Dr. Cheney give us a little of the backstory about what they were seeing and kind of what happened behind the scenes before they called the CDC to come look at this mystery outbreak in Lake Tahoe? Well, Dr. Peterson's first patient was a, a wealthy individual who spent most of her time in Texas. She had what seemed to be like the, the Cathcart chronic fatigue illness. Um, he ran every test that he could on this, this lady and simply couldn't find any answers. But he uh, remembered that this was abnormal. He took her seriously. And this really started him on the search, trying to find answers, which is why he was pouring over the uh, Journal of American Medical Association articles trying to find some explanation for her illness. At the same time, Dr. Cheney actually had a satellite office in Carnelian Bay, about eight miles away from Incline Village. This was done to try to channel more patients to their high-powered uh, Incline Village practice. They were sort of uh, trying to dominate the North Shore, which put them into competition with other doctors. And they were highly effective because they were very good diagnosticians and they listened to patients. And when I was suffering from mold down in the Bay Area, getting worse and worse, I eventually became so ill that I wound up going back to Lake Tahoe to stay with my family. And the place I was staying was directly across the street from Dr. Paul Cheney's office. So my brother and my mother literally carried me over to Dr. Cheney and I became his first mystery illness patient. And he started searching for whatever was going on. And at the same time, we had a, a meter reader named Chris Guthrie, who was extremely athletic. I mean, in the course of reading all the meters, she was walking 18 to 20 miles per day. So this is a, a former school teacher who turned meter reader in extremely good shape and it was the same thing. She had this incredible overwhelming fatigue, headaches, rashes. She just seemed to be falling apart. Nothing Dr. Cheney could do explained her illness or was helping her. And then finally, she reached a point where 
around Christmas time, around late 1984, she got so sick that in the course of doing her job, reading the meters, she collapsed. She simply sat down on the side of the road, managed to call her husband for help, who had to drive and retrieve her from the side of the road. And in this way, I became Dr. Cheney's first mystery illness patient, and uh, Chris Guthrie became the next. But at this time, they still hadn't connected um, what was happening with us to Dr. Cathcart's illness or to this EBV phenomenon that was sweeping the nation. That didn't occur until Dr. Peterson read the, the JMA articles in January of, of 1985 and started to apply what he read in these two papers to what they were seeing in Incline Village. So he saw those he saw those papers, and if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, they were were they papers about EBV? Yeah, uh, Dr. Jones and Dr. Strauss had both uh, used the Epstein-Barr virus serology test to see this fluctuating condition. Knew that this was not normal, that for healthy, immune competent adults to suddenly collapse with a chronic form of the kissing disease was, in effect, a new syndrome. So they were collating what they believed, all of them, Dubois, Strauss, Jones, to be a, a new entity to enter into the medical literature, something that had, had no um, prior, no, no precedent in the medical literature. So their project was to elevate Epstein-Barr virus up to the level of being a disease so they could study it. Wow. Can you tell us who Dr. Jones and Dr. Strauss are and who, who they were working for at the time? Um, Dr. Strauss was a high-ranking official in the National Institute of Health. Essentially, he had achieved a, a status where he was in charge of the grant funding. So he was an extremely powerful, influential man because even though he might not have any direct control over doctors from the CDC, his power to uh, control grant funding meant that, in effect, he was in control and they were going to listen to him. And um, Dr. Jones was an Epstein-Barr virus expert and for some reason, the, the name of the hospital he was working at slips my mind. But he had um, got enough notoriety that his work with Epstein-Barr virus had caught the attention of some of the EBV or adult mono support groups back in Massachusetts and in Portland, Oregon. So they were working with Dr. Jones on developing the evidence base for the Epstein-Barr virus phenomenon to see what this led to. And that, and that fixation of blaming this mystery illness on the Epstein-Barr virus is part of the reason that um, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> 
But essentially what happened, I, I was going to kind of allude to the fact that it's, it's why the CDC um, gave chronic fatigue syndrome a little bit of a confusing name because what happened is all of the doctors that got involved thought there was a different cause, right? Because Eric, nobody really knew what was happening. There was this new literature about EBV. They thought maybe we have a hybridized EBV. We have to, we have to research and spend all this money, but then you didn't have EBV. And so as a prototype, you didn't really fit that description. At what point was the CDC called in? How many people got sick first? Um, the, the cluster situation that really caught Dr. Uh, Peterson and Dr. Cheney's attention started out in late 1984 with the girls basketball team at um, Incline Village who suddenly fell apart and were unable to play out the rest of the season. And that seemed to fade away. So they didn't take any further action on it and they didn't know what action to take. And then there was a cluster of teachers at Incline Village and North Tahoe High School, I mean, um, Truckee High School and North Tahoe High School. So that really scared them into taking it more seriously. But at that point, they still really didn't have any evidence to go on as to what the cause was. So Dr. Peterson's search really moved into high gear at that point, and they acquired more and more patients throughout the spring of 1985 until the situation exploded. It went from 30 or 40 patients into the hundreds, just about um, April, May of, of 1985. And that's when Dr. Cheney really, really became alarmed. And thanks to the new Epstein-Barr serology test, they uh, found that about uh, three quarters of the people who were sick did fit the profile for the chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. And that's what inspired Dr. Cheney to you know, have the courage to say, we really think we've got something here and call the CDC for help. And in the midst of all this, thanks to this new EBV serology test, Dr. Cheney calls me into his office one day, very excited, and um, shows me my test results from the Nichols lab. And he puts it down on the table and he circles it and underlines it twice. I, I mean, he was really excited. And he goes, I've, I've got some news. You are completely EBV negative. And I'm going, what? <laughs> because you have never been exposed to EBV. You are completely negative. You, you don't have a reactivated case. You don't have a new case. You don't have it at all. And here we had thought that our illness very likely was this chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. I was actually disappointed. I thought that I had a, a cause for my illness and a potential treatment in the future. And to have the rug ripped out of me, you know, out from under me so dramatically, I was just in shock. But Dr. Cheney, very excited, says, he explains that his belief was that the EBV was only reactivated. It was really not the cause at all, had nothing to do with the syndrome. And at that point he tells me, I need your blood. So um, 
that's what elevated me as a patient of primary attention for Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson in um, April of um, 1986. Because at that point, the people converging on Incline Village seemed determined to prove that it was a form of chronic EBV. And here, Dr. Cheney had completely reversed course and was trying to disprove it. And like you, so many others were showing that were sick that they did not have EBV either, correct? Um, yeah, there were uh, others, but try as you might, they were difficult to locate. And by the time of the um, Holmes Committee's convening in 1987, Dr. Cheney had only found 19 cases of people that were completely EBV negative, but fit all other parameters for the chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. So he presented this as evidence that uh, they should abandon the search or abandon their blame on Epstein-Barr virus and move the search to an Agent X. We were called the pristine cases. And in essence, the 19 of us were the core basis of the evidential reasons for the creation of the Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome. Thank you, Eric, for that information. That, viewers and listeners, you know, that was a lot. That was a lot to take in. But you know what? We'll have the transcripts below so you can literally go back and look at it whenever you need to. And for our next episode, things take a turn that are really interesting. So in this story, we kind of are led into EBV being the situation, but we find out some other pertinent information that kind of throws a wrench into the mix. So Eric is going to go ahead and explain all that in our chronic fatigue series here that we have going on. And we are just so excited that you guys are joining us on this journey. Um, it's We've been working around the clock to get this together for you guys so you know exactly what has been going on from history up until now. Um, and just thank you for listening. So in order to support us, we just ask that you like, share, comment on our content, and also donate. Feel free to check out our Patreon page, our GoFundMe page linked below, and help us keep this going because we are going to have so much information on toxic mold. We will be interviewing researchers and experts and doctors um, that have had run-ins with toxic mold, and we will discuss Eric's novel theory on why mold is getting out of control and sickening so many. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for those that have already donated. I can't believe it that we are already up a thousand dollars from our donors. So any little bit helps and we look forward to growing this podcast and providing you with critical information that could help you with your health.